I would make it somehow profitable to answer all these questions that we need answered. It's going to have to be something that's like nonprofit or government grants or something like CISA's doing a lot of this work now, you know, which is really good to see. But it's a conclusion I came to long ago that it's just not going to be profitable to figure out what's effective and what's not. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Adrian Sanabria, Director of Product Management at Tenshi Security, Cyber Advisor, Founder and Organizer at B-Sides Knoxville, Founder of the Security Weekly Labs over at the Cyber Risk Alliance, and an all-around solid dude in the world of cybersecurity. He's talking with me today about commonly held beliefs in cybersecurity that are flat-out wrong, or that at least have some context that's usually missing. We've gotten into this one, and I think you will too. Adrian, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Always my pleasure. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. All right. Why don't you tell us a bit about your background in cyber and a bit about your day job? Yeah. So I, I guess I've crossed 20 years in cyber now. And uh, I started out in IT and on the enterprise side and lucked out you know, working for a large credit card processor. So there was an opportunity for me to get into security and to do a lot of stuff in security in my first role. I think I joined that company when I was 22. So I was happy to work 80-hour weeks and learn all this interesting new stuff. Yeah, then moved on to consulting and then got into a really interesting job that kind of took my career for a spin in, in a different direction. Uh, Wendy Nather hired me over at 451 Research uh -huh. as an industry analyst. And, you know, first of all, I didn't realize that this was a thing that you could do. Yeah. You know, because it gave me the time to just kind of that point, I was 12 years into my career, and I had all these questions that I wanted to get answered. And it, it afforded me the luxury to talk to a bunch of really smart people, to ask these questions, to, to write about them, to publish them, to get feedback. And, uh, and it was a really great time. It was a really great move for my career and just fed that part of my brain where I'm like, you know, is this, and it's what we're talking about today. Like, is this really right? Like, this right. doesn't sound right. You know, how can we get to the bottom of this? All right. So so you had this analyst background that's, you know, that, mm -hmm. that kind of led to you. And I, I don't mean to jump you around, but I can't sure. help but feel like the Cyber Risk Alliance work you did with the product testing lab that you built. Like share a little bit about that, because I think that was a very bold yeah. vision that ties very much into what you're, you're sort of describing as your ramp up via this this analyst job. So that idea was born at 451. I remember when I was interviewing with Wendy Nather, one of my first questions was, how much hands-on time do you get with products? Right. And, uh, you know, obviously the answer is, well, not much. Because, you know, if we had a lab and we did lab testing, we wouldn't cover very much of the market. And already, I think when I joined, there were three of us, four of us, mm -hmm. something like that. So already we're pretty small you know, as far as, as the, the analyst firm's uh, security teams were. I don't know how big Gartner was back then, you know, like 50, 60, 70, somewhere around there. So, yeah, that was something that, that always kind of bugged me. And I remember having these, like I, I would talk to these companies, love the story, get sold on the story, get really excited about it, excitedly talk to other people about it, and occasionally would run into somebody who had actually used the product. Right. Somebody who had been a customer or had done a POC, and they're like, 
Yeah, yeah, Adrian, you know, it doesn't actually do all that. There's actually not really even much of a product yet. That's the vision. Like they haven't, they're talking about it like they've built it, but they haven't actually built it yet. Got it. And that was one of those pivotal points for me where I was like, where I kind of learned the the startup fake it till you make it uh, culture. And yeah, that led me to want to do some actual product testing, do some, you know, there was no real consumer reports or anything like that. Like there were, there's companies doing antivirus testing where they throw a bunch of samples, you know, or they, they try and emulate an adversary something like that. And, and they throw a product at it. They kind of score it on how it does, but that's not the same as living with a product. Right. That doesn't tell you how many hours or weeks or people does it take to get this product to where it's useful. And that's where you hear the real horror stories. Mm-hmm. That's where you hear, oh, well, when we bought it, we didn't know we needed three Python developers. It's unusable, you know? Right, 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 right. <laughs> and that's what I wanted to build. And that's that's what I built over at Cyber Risk Alliance. That's too cool. Yeah. And we did some of that work. It didn't, uh, it survived for about a year, but honestly, Cyber Risk Alliance just, you know, it would have required a staff of at least three to five and you know, they didn't have the funds for it. So I'd love to build it again somewhere else. The ones I did, you can find in semagazine.com. You can go to research and then Security Weekly Labs and they're there. And I'm very proud of them. We really only hit two categories. I hit external attack surface management and I hit uh, vulnerability, network vulnerability scanners. But yeah, it worked. I think most vendors really want to do it. And in fact, it kind of leads to one of my suspicions about the industry where you know, when we talk about myths and lies, mm-hmm. like it's it's not just straight up like like even when you read the Theranos story, it's not straight up lies, right? Mm-hmm. Like at some point mm-hmm. they're kind of they're faking it till they make it, and, and they get to a point to where it's it's just too late to turn back, and then it it starts to get a little bit more insidious. And in some of these cases, you know, a lot of companies either don't have the resources or it hasn't even occurred to them to test the efficacy of their product. Yeah, or to create a feedback loop between customer success and development, and you know the the product management side of the business. And I honestly think some of them don't realize that their product is either ineffective or even potentially harmful in some cases. Like it's yeah. totally possible for a product to have negative value. Sure. You know, like if you spend a bunch of time buying a product and then you find out you need three full time Python developers to get value out of it, all that time you sunk into that product up to that point is a complete write-off. That's complete loss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fair. That's completely fair. So, all right. So, we've kind of transitioned cleanly from your background into some of the topic matter at hand. It's not just the vendors that are sometimes faking claims, but they're even faking, you had told me, customers and awards. Like, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So, one story, I covered the Casby market very closely because it started off right when I joined 451 Research Mm -hmm. and nobody was covering it. it. for any analyst firm. So I started covering it and I was getting the sales pitch from one of these Casby vendors and they had the logo of the previous company I had worked for, the company I left for 451 Research. Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh, that's funny. Like I just had lunch with those guys. I would think they'd mention if they, you know, just bought a Casby or something like that. So I'm texting people while they're giving me the pitch. I'm like, hey, did, did you guys buy... I'm going to try and mostly stay away from names. I mean, this company has been acquired and, mm-hmm, and it, mm-hmm. you know, it's part of some larger Did you buy security a platform. X? Yeah. And they're like, no, like we just downloaded the 
because most of the CASB vendors had a free tool where you could just upload your proxy logs or firewall logs into it, and it would mm-hmm. tell you all your shadow IT. It would tell you, yeah, you've got employees going to Google Drive and Evernote and Dropbox, and like it's it's just a tool that parses your you know outgoing web browsing logs mm-hmm. for SaaS mm-hmm. tools, and that's all they did is they filled out the form to download that and ended up on the customer slide, and they they were horrified to find that they were being shared as a customer of this company they hadn't talked to a person yet wow like they they had never talked to anybody anybody at this company literally two days previous they just downloaded the free tool right and yeah so i i busted that company on that right then and there on that call and and so many examples of that in the industry there are plenty of fake awards out there oh the fake awards i've seen i've seen the CISO fake awards i guess there's just as many fake product awards huh and what makes a fake – and so, again, there's degrees of gray here. There are really crappy awards that aren't fake awards. They just – you know, like like uh, one set of awards, the the judge is a shock jock, like a radio jock. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, and it, it makes absolutely no sense for him to be judging cybersecurity awards. But then some that are just flat-out fake, where you can actually even fill in the name of the category you want to win an award in, and you can just make up your own category. You drop a credit card. You know, they send you a trophy. Some of these fake awards even have award ceremonies, oh, wow. which is bizarre. When you look at the pictures from the ceremonies, you know, generally when you have an award ceremony, like people don't know who's won yet. But this right. is an award ceremony where literally the only reason you're showing up is to pick up your trophies because everybody is paid for their awards. Mm-hmm. So there's this table at the back of the room that is just overflowing with these awards. <laughs> With, the, with these en- engraved, uh, you know, whatever, you know, they category they made up to, to win an award in. And they're right there in the website, too. Like, you can see the pictures uh, from these events where people just have armloads of awards that they, you know, paid a thousand bucks a piece for and that they're going to slap on their website. That's hysterical. So, so yeah, it varies from people just being ignorant, not realizing that their product probably does more harm than good to people that are just just flat out. And it's not even the whole company. It's, you know, people are fine to hire some marketing people that are just going to go out there, throw some budget around to create buzz around right. the, the product and, and the company. And enough people buy these fake awards that it's just become okay to do it. You know, it's, everybody's just kind of complacent. And even like, Companies with people I respect, it just makes my heart sink every time I, I go to a web page and I see, because I know the difference. I know which ones are straight up, right. pull out your credit card and you win an award versus ones that actually try to be uh, somewhat legit. Even if hosted by a shock jock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was the Stevie Awards. The ones that the, I'll name the award companies. I don't care about that. That's hysterical. <laughs> So we've talked here about fake companies whose products aren't really doing it, and there's kind of some some fakery there. The customers are fabricated. The awards are fabricated. What about the foundational claims that they start with? In other words, there's all these stats that come out, right? So many different security reports are reprinting the same essential stats. You do what you think of as research when you're in my role, you know, and, and, you, and you see that the such-and-such report said that 70% of all breaches were caused by people in pointed hats. And then you notice that the other such and such report from the other outfit also cites that 70% pointed hat figure. And you start to look around and you realize everybody's quoting the 70% pointed hat figure. And I'm wondering, 
what are the real origins of these these various random factoids that we cling to, and why is it so many of the reports end up citing each other? And I never find that original research. You know what I'm saying? Like I've never had the time to right. just dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and get to the the last, you know, the the first element in that long chain. But I'm I'm starting to wonder how valid <laughs> some of the foundational premises are. That that the you know the problem statement. In other words, we've just proven that the solution statement is full of all kinds of yeah. bogus stuff. I'm talking about the problem statement. Like, right? What's the deal with these factoids, and where do they come from, and how do we validate them? <laughs> you know that, and there's some troublemakers out there that will actually spend the time to go track that stuff down. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of them. <laughs> right and it on. sometimes gets me into trouble. Uh, I mean, there's one. I don't know whether or not I should name their name. If you follow me on Twitter. Or if you do a search on on any of the stuff that I've tweeted about this, I use their name uh, on Twitter, and and I've I've confronted them directly, but they've straight up just made up stuff out of out of the blue, oh, and wow. it's the same firm that's largely behind the sixty percent of small businesses uh, going out of business after a breach, stat the three point five million open jobs in Infosec stat. And the is something like $3.5 trillion in cyber incident losses or something like that. Like all those stats have nothing behind them and they all come from the same organization. Interesting. And yeah, so so you tr- you track this stuff down and it's interesting because I did that recently. I actually did it the other day. I went back and looked at the small business stat. And it's just people not doing their due diligence. Right. You know, and it's effectively it's 60% of small businesses went out of business within six months of a breach. And so, I mean, the first thing that hits you, if you've spent any time with stats is like, that sounds like a really lazy statistic because are you accounting for all the other reasons a small business might go out of business? Right. You know, like my first question is what percentage of small businesses would have gone out of business anyway? Right. Right. Regardless, like breach or no breach, like most small businesses fail, you know, or a majority, not most, maybe. So you track it and like a lot of these actually tracked back to the, yeah, the National Cybersecurity Alliance. Okay. Yeah. So the National Cybersecurity Alliance at one point in 2011 had the stat, the small business stat on their website. Okay. And then, you know, somebody asked them about it. They said, what's the attribution for this? And they couldn't figure it out. They had no idea where it came from. It wasn't attributed to anything. So they actually put a post in their website that I believe is still there today uh, where they retracted it, apologized and said, we have no idea where the stat came from. There's nothing supporting it. But it was on their website long enough for it to become, you know, just a, a folktale, you know, an InfoSec folktale. I've seen Symantec use it. I've seen IBM use it. You know, I've seen huge companies cite it in their reports. And... With references, but references to sites and other reports that also fail to cite any kind of original research. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's just one example of many where when you track these things down, it's usually either one of two things. It was um, nobody knows where it came from. Like sounds like somebody just made it up, you know, like the Mr. Rogers being a sniper, you know, with a thousand kills or whatever, like, like right. one of those things that just like who knows who or why came up with that, but somebody did at some point. Or people don't know how to read reports. They don't know how to read research and they misinterpret the statistics or they just read it really, really quickly. Right. Because another one that showed up as I was researching this one was one that said half of all small businesses are getting permanently 
taken out by cybercrime, by <laughs> cyber. Again, with that one, I'm like, okay, how many small businesses are there just in the U.S.? Not even the whole world. Right. Okay, 31.7 million. Are there enough bad guys out there to hack over 15 million U.S. small businesses? You know, even if it's automated malware, that just sounds almost impossible. As soon as you say almost half, I'm just thinking strictly anecdotally. I mean, I wake up in the morning yeah. and I go down to my corner coffee shop and I, you know, They'd be and gone. I visit my dentist yeah. and I, and one day half of them are missing. <laughs> you know? And it would all be cybersecurity breaches. Right, and, right. I mean, I get a lot of hate on this and I have over the years because I decided to actually track the number of companies that have been taken out okay. by a cyber attack. I think there's 23 or 24 on that list right now. I just added one recently. Companies that actually, like, it, I think we all heard the story a year or two ago about that one small outfit that simply couldn't afford to deal with the ransomware and basically shuttered the doors and closed shops. And yeah. I've only heard of the one. I can't remember who it was, and I do remember reading an article about it that actually named the business. Yeah, so Code Spaces is one where they get access to their, you know, they had like a root account for everything in AWS, and, and the bad guys got, a, you know, cred stuffing, got access to that. And uh, just ransomed access to their AWS. They didn't pay. They destroyed all the data. And they never recovered from it. But yeah, it's a pretty small number. And there's a lot that, uh, you know, since I've been tracking this, people will send them to me. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that where people think it was a cyber attack that took out this company. But actually, when you dig into it, no, it wasn't. Right. You know, there, there was uh, a bigger reason. And again, it's one of those, you know, regardless of the breach, they would have gone out of business anyway. And yeah, there's 23 on that list right now. Okay. So even even if you broadened that to cyber breach was a contributing factor, there's a big difference yeah. between 23 and, and uh, 15 million, right? Like, <laughs> I think we're still closer and, and to I've the started 23. To track, I've started to track those also. I now have a close but not quite tab on, on this spreadsheet okay. <laughs> where I track them. And this is a public spreadsheet. Actually, if you go to my Twitter and you look at my pinned uh, comment, it has a link to the spreadsheet. Nice. And off the top of my head, I'd say low hundreds, like maybe between 100 and 200 would be on there where a breach was a, a major factor, Okay. like a significant factor. Okay. But yeah, and most of them are small businesses. Larger businesses can weather these kinds of events. You know, they, they have cyber insurance, you know, they, they have uh, money, you know, significant funds in the bank, you know, they can lay people off, they, they can leverage debt, you know, there, there's a lot of, a lot more options available to them than are to a small dentist office or a coffee shop or something like that. But yeah, so, you know, the largest one was actually the most recent one I added, which was uh, United Structures of America, which might have had around 450 employees. It's kind of hard to find the, the details for that. And even then, it's something where there were lots of other contributing factors also. You know, there was uh, industry effects and stuff like that where they they weren't getting the same number of orders, had nothing to do with the cyber attack. You know, they had financing issues, you know, steel tariffs, stuff like that impacted them as as well. But Man, you're you're really digging in. There's definitely some on this list that are just uh, straight up got hacked, all the data gone, and they saw no way forward and just shut the the company down. Interesting. So 23 low hundreds versus 15 million. Nobody wants to believe it. I won't say nobody. Like some people like me, they're like, yeah, that always sounded kind of, that always sounded fishy to me. I'm glad you did this research. You know, but there are people that have just kind of hinged their, their reputations and their careers on some of these myths and, yeah. and will, will just, 
you know, say that, well, there's no way you can be sure that you have a complete list. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I could be missing people from this, right. but I'm not missing 15 million. Right. And, and I'll say this call out to all of our listeners. Anybody that knows of one, reach out to Adrian on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle, by the way? Zawaba, which is spelled S-A-W-A-B-A. Zawaba. There we go. Let's pause right there and hear a brief word from our sponsor. Howdy, y'all. Asset management for IT and security sure ain't easy, and our networks are fixing to get more complex. But I reckon there's a better way of doing things, and it starts with Axonius. Axonius helps you lasso everything in your environment, devices, users, software, and more, to provide an always up-to-date inventory, uncover gaps, and automate action. You want a free walkthrough of the platform? Head on over to axonius.com slash get dash a dash tour. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com slash get dash A dash tour. All right. So just reach out to Adrian there. And uh, if you know of one, send it to him. Let's see if it's already on his list. If not, maybe his uh, his low hundreds can grow to 15 million after just one podcast <laughs> listen. <laughs> right. Not likely. Not likely. <laughs> I wish I had 15 million listeners. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, you don't want to downplay it too much. It's not that companies don't get hurt by breaches, but I mean, it benefits no one to make up stats and, right. and to, you know, to, to push this narrative that uh, half of all small businesses are, are just, you know, getting whacked. Yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 totally fair. And again, you would you would see this in the world if this were true. I mean, literally, your corner coffee shop, your dentist, your add up every your your place you pick up your dry cleaning. Like these are all the small businesses you interact with on a daily basis. But the crooks don't. I mean, the bad guys don't want to put anybody out of business. You know that that uh, you don't kill the cow, you milk the cow, right? Right, right. Doesn't make any sense, even from their perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there's a certain amount of, um, gee, I'm sorry, I can't pay on the part of the victim and the bad guy can't mm. just let them go because then the word will get out. The threat's not yeah. real. So so there is a certain inclination to let them perish in those scenarios, right? On the part of the bad guys. But but otherwise, yeah, I'm I'm with you. They 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 don't wanna they don't wanna destroy the ecosystem upon which they feed. Yeah, and a lot of these in recent years have been ransom, but not all of them are. There are a few cases of deliberate sabotage by previous employees. Okay. There's at least two or three big cases with that, uh, one of which has a great video you can watch on on YouTube where the the previous CEO walks you through the entire attack. And that's uh, it's an Australian company uh, that, that was a registrar called distribute.it. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a really interesting one. All right. So we've got now the vendors themselves and the specious claims they're making about their products, their customers, the awards. We've got the specious claims about the drivers for the industry itself, the assumptions and the stats they all quote, the problem statements that we all bring forward as, as you know, the vendor community brings forward. And the rest of us even believe and bring forward. When, when we're going upstairs to the board, we're citing the same statistics as CISOs, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, oh, 60% and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, if, if we read these things in enough studies, we think they're real. And it's interesting if the studies are all just parroting each other and then all back to a single broken source or a single non-existent source or, you know, somebody started it somewhere. That's very telling about the whole industry, not just the vendor side of it, right? Yeah, and it's, you know, generally if a stat sounds too good to be true, you know, I mean, you just have to have that, um, you know, that little voice in your brain that's telling you, eh, that doesn't sound quite right. Right. You know, like you said, not everybody has time to, to dig into each one of these, you know, but some of them are just... Uh, you know, like, like when you're claiming that the amount of losses is greater than the GDP of half the first world countries, right? you might want to dig into that a little bit. 
you know, right. when, you know, any kind of claim that cybersecurity losses are greater than fraud losses. You know, I mean, generally we've been like a fifth or smaller than what people lose in fraud and shrink and like all the, the varieties of fraud yeah. out there. Yeah. The older school risks you know, that have always been there since long before cyber risk. Exactly. Yeah. Fraud losses are generally much larger. And yeah, ransoms kind of changed the game a little bit, but still like a lot of these ransoms are, are still a tiny fraction of, you know, what a lot of retail companies, for example, lose to fraud. Like the, read about the amounts that Home Depot loses to, to shrink, like from a right. single store. It's shocking. All right. Let's talk about some other maybe myths and lies that might be drivers either for the vendor side, the CISO side, or, or like in this last case, I think everybody falls victim to this. If you're not careful and cautious, I think all of us end up echoing these things. It becomes a very, very loud echo chamber of vendors and CISOs alike. There's a couple of others that you brought up in an earlier conversation we talked about, and I'll just throw them all three out there at once. Uh, vulnerability management, security awareness training, and pen testing. You kind of had some interesting takes on all three of those, that there's sort of some myths and lies and drivers behind those three. You want to give us a quick summary on those three as well? I'll need to find the link for some of the studies here, but most of what we're talking about, there have been actual studies on. We can share all those in the show notes as we as we publish the show. If you can, if you can gather all those by publication time, we'll uh, we'll get all that bundled. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff out there. Like there's one that just tackles these claims of of what the losses are. Yeah. In uh, you know, from cybercrime. And uh it's kind of like a meta analysis of a bunch of numbers and reports that are out there. And yeah, so vulnerability management, uh, you know, there's some great stuff out there from Scientia, you know, where they teamed up with Kenna Security mm-hmm. and they they actually built a, a system that they can use to predict how likely a vulnerability is to become weaponized for an exploit to, to be worth developing for it. And yes, yeah, some, some of the earlier work that they did basically showed that like a CVSS score that we give to any given vulnerability is about as good a chance of being accurate as just choosing a number at random. There's a whole market of companies that just take all your vulnerability data and try to give it a correct, a more accurate score. Right. Yeah, you know, the estimates that you see range anywhere from like two to seven percent of vulnerabilities are actually risks to the business or actually worth your time. I think the ones that will actually get you in hot water is vanishingly smaller than that. You know, it's it's yeah. like out of the hundred and you know twenty thousand vulnerabilities out there, you know, it's a list of less than a thousand. Okay. You know, and. Uh, and now CISA has a list. They have a list of uh, vulnerabilities that they've seen actively exploited in the wild. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's, it's somewhere shy of 800. And, you know, it's just uh, I do a lot of advisory work with IONS and I talk to a lot of companies. And it's, you know, the amount of companies that just pour resources into vulnerability management and patching. But, you know, then you look over at the like the Verizon DBR and some of these breach stats that we have. And you find that it's um, absolutely attackers will lo- use some low-hanging fruit. You know, yeah. like like if you've got a, a MongoDB with, with no creds on it out there, open S3 bucket, something like that, absolutely they're going to take advantage of it. But it's just not anybody's, you know, it's, it's not the most common tactic by any measure. But then you see companies, you know, it's maybe between 3 and 7% of the problem. But then you see companies spending like 70% of their labor because it's a tough problem. These tools we have generate so many vulnerabilities to take care of that we have a whole market just to, you know, try and whittle those down to something reasonable, to something right. doable. 
that, you know, this, this ties into one of those um, statistics that gets bandied about. I have in the last three years seen in a, in a number of reports st- statistics ranging from 50 to 70%, I think are the various range of claims. 50 to 70% of all ransomware events were actually caused by vulnerability management situation as opposed to stolen credentials and and that, that that's on the rise. And anecdotally, you can look at, I'm thinking of Absolutely some of the greatest not. hits from the last little while, you know, Citrix, uh, VMware, I'm trying to remember, I, I may be mixing up my vendors here, but somebody who's on the outside of your attack surface, somebody who, you know, RDP vulnerabilities, et cetera, these kinds of things, somebody who's on the outside and who has a known vulnerability that the bad guys exploit, that 50 to 70% of all ransomware is now caused by that as opposed to the traditional, you know, phishing credentials. I don't know where that stat comes from. And I've seen it cited a few places, but I don't know if there's any research I've seen to back that claim up. No, I've, I've spent some time tracking that one down, and that one is, is completely made up. I'm somewhat infamous. Uh, I think it was a 2015 Black Hat. I was wandering through the expo floor when, when I was an uh, industry analyst. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will use some names here. <laughs> Silence was calling. They had this this big, basically, billboard you know, stating that 80%, I think it was, or 90% of all breaches were were done by ransomware. Mm-hmm. Or, or not ransomware, but but malware. Okay. It was some form of malware behind As opposed to a human. To 90%. And they were citing the Verizon data breach report okay. on that, the, the DBIR. And, I mean, it was really easy to debunk. It took me about five minutes. You know, I, I, I pinged uh, somebody at the DBIR, sent them a DM on Twitter because – before using any of the stats from the Verizon DBIR, you're supposed to check with them first to make sure you're doing it correctly and that you're yeah. presenting these stats correctly. Yeah. And they hadn't. And so, yeah, I pinged them just to confirm. And yeah, they just read the y-axis on a graph wrong. You know, wow. they assumed the y-axis went from zero to 100 mm-hmm. percentage-wise. But the top of the y-axis axis was something like 25 Okay. And it was like 80 to 90% of the way to the top. Yeah. So the actual number for malware was, was less than a quarter. It was something okay. like 22%. Okay. And because they assumed the graph was zero to 100 and it was very close to the top of that, you know, that, yeah. that's where they're 80 to 90. So that, that's where some of this stuff comes from. Interesting. They're just eyeballing it. Didn't do any due diligence. It's misinterpretation. It's not malice. It's just, it's, it's laziness or lack of understanding. So it's a combination of things. It's laziness, but it's somebody reading the DBIR really wanting stats like that to be true. Right. The moment they saw that, they, they their it. mind interpreted the way they wanted it to be. They skipped the due diligence and they emailed their marketing team and said, we got we to take advantage of this. We Confirmation bias. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Okay. All right. Exactly. So that's vuln that's management. We got pen testing and we got security awareness training. Yeah, so I did a, a series of talks on uh, called It's Time to Kill the Pen Test a couple years ago. And this is from years of doing pen tests, you know, and again, advising companies, working with companies. I, I just didn't see a whole lot of value coming out of the average pen test. You know, a lot of companies have pen tests because they don't know what else to do with their <laughs> security budget. And you could apply that more broadly. Like a lot of people have security budget. And they, they buy what they see their peers doing, what they see in Gartner, you know, what analysts tell them to do. You need some way to assess what you need to do and do it. And who doesn't do pen tests? You know, and in fact, 
depending on what kind of data you have, you might be required to have a pen test. And so many pen tests, you know, at least back then, it's, it, I think it's gotten somewhat better now with the whole trend with purple teaming and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them back then were just an extension of your vulnerability management program. You know, somebody would come in, uh, they'd run a vulnerability scanner on your network, which you've already done, by the way. Why a pen tester wouldn't just use your already completed scan results and save right. you a bunch of time, I don't know. But that's that's the way they probably still do it. Uh, they'll run a vulnerability scanner, uh, look for anything exploitable, try to exploit it, see where they can get you know, from exploiting the, those vulnerabilities. And then comes in the actual pen testing. You know, they'll yeah. try and pivot. They'll try and create accounts. They'll, you know, see what they can do with whatever access those exploits give them. And maybe there's also a social engineering component of it. They're going to try and fish some users, some other components to it. But like that core part of your pen test, that's probably your biggest line item on your statement of work. When you hire a pen testing firm, most of it's either running a vulnerability scanner or writing the report at the end. And there's right. this tiny little bit in the middle there that's little, maybe 30 minutes to an hour. A little bit <laughs> or, of hackery. You know, it depends on how big your, your engagement is. Right. Uh, that's actual pen testing. So I proposed a new way of doing it. And, and generally what I found working with companies, I founded my own company, me and a friend of mine, Kyle, founded a company called Savage Security where we, we built a replacement for pen testing. You know, and it ended up looking a lot like you know, what some of the purple teaming we see out there now is. And generally what we found is nobody had their security product set up right. You right. Know, everything was misconfigured. Right. There's just all this low-hanging fruit, all this fundamental basics that they need help with. They don't need somebody to come in, you know, you know, kick them in the pants and tell them that their security sucks. Right. They need help fixing it. Right. They need help prioritizing what to fix. Right. And they need a set of eyes that can even see what's broken, see what's wrong. Like in one case, I went into a company and they were scanning 14 websites and 13 of the 14 websites were missing the M on .com. So they're scanning .co for 13 of their 14 websites, which weren't valid domain names. But because one of them was spelled correctly in the scan configuration, they got results, which made them think everything was getting scanned. So it's just an example. One of these yeah. just really, like, I have no idea how they managed to copy and paste 14 lines of text missing an M <laughs> on the end of 13 of those 14 lines. I'm not sure how that happens, but it did. And it, it was something that they weren't aware of. And yeah, just multiply that by every tool you've got. There you go. And that's what we were finding. Of course, these these were not like huge banks or anything like that, like our you know, where we were doing our most business were companies that had a small security team or, or no security team. A report came out about six months ago. I think it was last December, actually. Mm-hmm. So a little bit more than six months ago, about eight months ago. It was a study of a large German company. I, th- I think something like 4,000 uh, users in the study. It was a very long study, like a 14-month study that basically showed, came to the conclusion that security awareness training did more harm than good. I'll be darned. Yeah, basically just promoting the wrong behaviors. You know, that that kind of like a lot of people are going to be nodding saying, yeah, you know, that that's not surprising. And of course, again, it's it's not that 100% of all security awareness training is is bad or, or harmful. But this was, you know, generally the way people are doing it. And this didn't even get into punishing employees for mm-hmm. <laughs> doing bad on phishing. Yeah, no, no punitive aspects of it, which I, if anyone who's listened to this show knows – I hate the punitive aspects of it. Right, because it's not like are you going to put that in your job recs? Like, right, <laughs> need to be 
you know, good at passing fishing tests, you know, for, right. you know, whatever role you're, you're trying to hire. It's just, um, I don't know. It should not be a key skill. <laughs> I don't know. It's, 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 it's kind of a weird route to go down with some of these tools. And, you know, the main reason I bring it up is it, it just kind of shows a lot of the products that we build. We're just guessing. Like we, yeah. we don't know if these are the right solutions to these problems, you know, but a lot of people, like maybe if they haven't been in the industry very long or they haven't really pulled apart some of these products or, or they haven't done the kind of testing that we need, you know, good product testing out there for, nobody really knows the eff- efficacy of these products. You know, like we assume, okay, this is, you know, a $5 billion industry, you know, mm-hmm. sub market within the cybersecurity industry you know, nobody's paying $5 billion for something that doesn't work, right? Right, right. (laughs) It must work. There's a self-fulfilling prophecy component to all of that. Yeah. Um, I'm spending the money because I've got a a figure that says this is the right place to spend the money, and therefore I have to justify that I spent the money correctly, and therefore I solidify and become another voice backing that figure, and that figure, again, may have started from thin air, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of security spending, you know, is probably – roughly the same values as having insurance, you know, provides some value in that, you know, you showed you did something, you right. know, that when, when due diligence happens, you know, you're more likely to be negligent if you tried nothing than if you tried something that didn't work. Right. And if it's a $5 billion industry, like you're not the only one that tried this thing that didn't work. So collectively, right. like if enough people. Others did it too. Industry best practices is the phrase we all <laughs> use for that one, Right. Industry best practices. And yeah, kind of the point here is that these are experiments. You know, some of these, a lot of these products we have, there's no market analysis before somebody creates these products. Little to no. I I rarely see any market, any real work on, you know, looking to see if there's a market fit or analysis before they build something. And even less science out there that not only shows whether it works or not, but whether it works within like an actual enterprise. You right. Know, like there, there's a lot of academic stuff out there that, you know, sure, this could stop all, all malware, but it also stops all employees from doing their jobs. Yeah. And it's all predicated <laughs> on problem statements that are equally unvetted, right? Yeah. yeah. So it should be natural for us to have to rip and replace and say, yeah, I, I tried this. It didn't work. Moving on. I'm trying something else. We see the industry do it. Mm-hmm. You know, how many product categories in our industry have we seen promise the, the moon and the stars fail and then reemerge five years later. Right. You know, like we, we saw it with, with uh, application control back in the, in the late uh, 2000s, went away for a couple of years, came back. We saw it happen with uh, XDR is effectively like the third time, third version of Sims, basically. Yeah, it is. It is. We're going to gather all these events. We're going to correlate them. And, uh, you know, like ArcSight was selling that back in 2002, you know, right. 2003. And I was thinking of UEBA and the fact that it once upon mm-hmm. a time stood on its own and then everybody realized it's not useful yep. on its own and all the SIM and SOC companies snapped it up and yep. all of a sudden it Casby. vanished. Like like the things that pop up and go away. Casby, DLP is disappearing. Like DLP is becoming absorbed by some of these other uh, it's, functions. It's coming back now. We've actually seen, of course, they're not going to call it DLP, but it's um, data security. Is, yeah. It's basically, I, I've, I've seen data security, oh, what's the term? It's it's basically borrowing from the the cloud Cloud security posture management. So yeah, data security posture management is there the you term go. now. And step one is discover the data. Step two is the DLP stage where you right. classify and categorize the data. 
And then step three and four is, you know, I don't know, machine learning like enforces everything correctly without any input from analysts. I don't know. (laughs) All right. right. I mean, some of it might be great. Uh, You know, I I think uh, the actual DLP techniques have come a long way. Like we're not writing regex anymore. You know, we're training classifiers, you know, on, on sample data, you know, so uh, at least the techniques and some of the approaches are better. Yeah. You know, but as soon as I see them just, you know, that's a lot to claim all at once for a startup. Sure like it is. Just doing the discoveries a really hard piece. Yeah. Just doing the classification, you know, where you're not going to bury an analyst in false positives is a really hard piece. And they're going all the way to automated enforcement. Like, yeah. yeah. You know, take your time. Work right. your way there. Right. Like that's too right. much to claim yep. pre-series A. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. All right. Well, listen, Adrian Sanabria. This has been a brilliant chat. This has been amazing. We've covered a lot of ground here. And I think I'm going to ask you the question I ask every guest, and I think it's actually more apropos now than ever on this show, this particular episode. If you could wave a magic wand and change any one thing about the cybersecurity world, what would that one thing be? Oh, I would make it somehow profitable to answer all these questions that we need answered. There you go. It's going to have to be something that's like nonprofit or government grants or something like CISA's doing a lot of this work now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, which is really good to see. But it's a conclusion I came to long ago that it's just not going to be profitable to figure out what's effective and what's not. So, like, somebody's going to have to do it and either not get paid for it or, you know, do it as charity work. So, if I could change that and make that super hyper profitable, I think we'd, we'd be in a great place, but that's just, there's not a whole lot of money in, in debunking things, right? Yeah. Yeah. A lot more in making people believe that they work. Right. Maybe, maybe they do. Maybe they don't. Right. That's a fair, that's a fair (laughs) assessment of the game. And I'm sitting here thinking, how do we do this? Like subscription service, there's gotta be enough of us that want the real truth behind the story. Subscribe to, you know, (laughs) cut through the red tape, cut through the BS, cut through the... (laughs) Yeah, the so the product reviews the product reviews I did were profitable. The vendor will pay. You have to be careful how you do it. You know, you have to mm-hmm. make it clear that they're not they're not paying for you know, they pay for the the end report, you know, the reprint rights to the report. Right. You know, no money changes hands uh, until you're done doing all the all the work cuz Maybe their product sucks and they don't want reprint rights to a report that says, hey, your product doesn't work. So that does work. Enough companies are willing to pay for an independent analysis, you know, pros, cons and all, good, bad and ugly for that to be profitable. Or you could go the route of just uh, selling the reports themselves. So like a subscription, like, you know, thousand bucks a year, you get access to the reports or whatever, you know, so basically like an analyst firm. Right, like you do with uh, with all the stuff that analysts put behind paywalls. But I, I really wanted some form of that report to be open and free for the public to read, which is why I went the route of charging the vendors. Right, uh, I get for, that for to advertise and reprint. And all I that. get that. I'm thinking of an analogy from the shooting world. You read any gun magazine out there, and it's nothing but ads for all the makers of all the various guns that are out there, right? And there's there's a handful mm-hmm. of actual manufacturers making guns, and so. Any review written in that magazine is intrinsically a review by somebody who is an advertiser for that magazine. Ooh. And do they state that? They don't state that, but that's but that's the way it works, right? And then you have a review of any given manufacturer's stuff. At some point, that manufacturer has indeed advertised in your magazine or will in the future. And so if you write a yeah. negative review, 
you're going to lose advertising revenue. And so there are no negative reviews yeah. in those magazines. That's the nature of it. And the running joke is it could be a defective, you know, weapon that that explodes in your hand the first time you try to pull the trigger. And the review will say yeah. something like, perhaps the most devastating weapon on the market. You know, like, <laughs> they don't mention it to your hand getting blown up. If I did nothing else when I created these reviews, I did get rid of SE Magazine's five-star reviews, which I remember getting them in paper form back in the early 2000s. Okay. And everybody always got five stars. And I, I found out the reason for that was that um, basically in the process, if you got below a certain rating, and I think it was four and a half stars, you could beg off and not have your rating published. So it wasn't that nobody ever... It wasn't that everybody wow. got five stars. It's that anybody that got anything below that, and honestly, nobody away. should have been getting five stars. But anybody below that could beg off and, and not have their, their review published. Oh, that's crazy. That's crazy. So, yeah, that's the first thing I got rid of. I got to get rid of the five-star rating and rebuild them the way I wanted to build them. And, um, and now there's nothing, which is, is kind of sad. But I'd love to see somebody pick it up and do something with that either at CRA or somewhere else. Well, you're, you're but, doing a great service for the community. You really are. And you're right that to sustain it, it's got to be profitable. There, there, there needs to be a team of people with minds like yours tasked with and paid to dive into these problems yeah. and unearth the real truth behind all these myths and all these stories and all these lies. And sometimes, like you said, simple mistakes or just, you know, confirmation bias or whatever it might be. It's not always malicious, that's for sure. But it's still yeah. falsehood that's out there that's disrupting and driving, you know, so many of our decisions. Yeah. And if, we're, if you're going to let bad data drive your decisions, you're going to have bad outcomes. It's that simple. You know, if you chart out the money made by the vendor industry and like the number of breaches, like I would want those to be going in different directions. <laughs> Right. Not in the same direction. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. Watching the industry make go over a hundred billion dollars in revenue as cybercrime also hits record revenue is just not a good correlation. It's not at all. Well, listen, Adrian Sanabria, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch to have this chat with me. This has been a brilliant conversation. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs>